Natalie and I are very excited and thankful for the opportunity to be here this weekend with you guys. We had a really good time in Sunday school. Maybe for those who were not able to be during the ABF hour, uh, my name is Kyle, my wife Natalie. We are BMM missionaries appointees to the Netherlands. One thing that I really appreciate that uh, Pastor Chad has really just made me feel quite at home here because I get to speak my second language of sarcasm. And I get to speak with somebody who is so fluent in that. Um, so we've, we've appreciated our time to be here, getting to know some of you already. And I've already heard the comment from a couple people that I have never heard of a missionary to the Netherlands. And if you were here during the ABF hour, you'd remember me saying that I had never heard of a missionary to the Netherlands prior to 2019 when I first went over there. And so if you are not able to be here during that, I want to share with you just a three and a half minute video. If you, are see if you were here this morning and seeing this a second time, then great, you already know what to expect. This three and a half minute video shares a little bit about the need for missions in the Netherlands. So if you're asking that question, well, why are you going to the Netherlands? What is the need in the Netherlands? I've never heard that before. Hopefully this video can help answer that. Before I push play and step down, then I want to make a comment. In the video, you will see a couple, and they are, looks like they are in the mountains. And if you're thinking, wow, I did not know the Netherlands had mountains, they don't. When I was given that video, I got really excited. I was like, I didn't know that there were mountains in the Netherlands. That's so cool. And our coworker said, actually, they were on vacation in Germany. So when you see mountains, don't worry. <laughs> we're not going to have mountains. But hopefully that this video will help uh, shine a little bit of uh, understanding on uh, the state of churches in the Netherlands and why we feel like the Lord is leading us there. So 55% of the country just claims to be nothing in the area of religion. For many of them, they really don't know why they're atheists. It's, it's their basically default setting. As you get into conversations with them, uh, it's an open opportunity to introduce them to what the Bible says, who God is, and what the Gospel is. Because in Holland there are Christians, but really in the South there are almost non-Christians. The most teenagers at this camp are uh, alone Christian. Um, and they are so in need to hear the gospel and to be strengthened and to go into the next year where they can be at their school where no one is Christian. What we need in Holland, and especially in the south of Holland, is a pastor or pastors who explain the gospel simply as it is um, and tell what God wants of us and helps us to live by the Bible, live by uh, obedience. The spiritual climate in the Netherlands, a lot of times when you're talking to someone who really does know things that are in the Bible, they, they knew a lot of things about the Bible, but it, it never really reached their, their heart. And so I, essentially you would say that they had a dead faith. And I also think in the rest of Holland, it's like our faith is, um, our biblical faith and our biblical churches are uh, losing their strength. Um, it's very much about how you feel and if you feel feeling God and you can just live your life. The thing that continually amazes me is that so many people who have been saved for quite a while and been involved in church for quite a while uh, still do not grasp the 
simple principles of biblical interpretation, just reading, reading, reading the Word of God and understanding what it says. These are, are, are tremendous needs that um, we have in our churches. And, um, I think it's very necessary for Holland that there are good, good biblical uh, teachers um, and uh, missionaries that uh, bring the gospel as God has meant it in his word. This is why we need Kyle and Natalie to come to the Netherlands to join our team so that they too can be involved in equipping the saints that God entrusts to them for the work of the ministry. What Kyle and Natalie would be doing is they would, they would fit into our team as church planters and that really would be the focus of what we're doing. And, and continuing discipleship and training Exactly. So that the Dutch people can take over the ministries for themselves. We need good preachers with biblical truth. We need people who just come over and explain that to the Dutch people. Hopefully that sheds just a little bit of light on, on what we're doing, Lord willing, and some of the people that we will be interacting with. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 11. That's where we're going to be this morning, Acts 11. What we, one of the things that we've appreciated about being here already this morning is being able to just make mutual connections and, and see where our circles cross and people that we know. I was looking at some of the missionaries that you guys already support on the, uh, in the back foyer and recognizing names and being friends with some of them and knowing who they are. I find that really, really fun when we can make some of those connections. When you guys have one of your missionaries come back to visit and you hear a report and you hear how the Lord's been working in their country, I don't know if it's anything like this for you guys, but for us at our church in Minnesota, it just colors in the ministry. You spend several years at a time, maybe not seeing them in person, but you read their letters, you get their updates. I see that you have some updates in the bulletin, so you hear bits and pieces about your missionaries. But then when they come back to visit in person, it just colors everything in. You hear their personality, what makes them laugh, what frustrations they've had, and you can see it on their face and it just colors that in. I love that when missionaries come back to visit. Our church in Minnesota had uh, some missionaries to France come back about a year ago, and I had heard their name. Our church had raved about these missionaries, but we had only been, at that time, we'd only been at the church just for about a year, so we hadn't had a chance to meet them. So when we had an opportunity to meet them, like I said, it colored in all of their letters. Uh, the husband is actually, there are missionaries in France, the husband is a Frenchman, his wife is American, and so he very much has that European, that French dry sense of humor where he will say something from the pulpit and he will burst out laughing his face will turn red kind of that contagious laugh and we're sitting here not thinking his joke was funny but he himself was funny but then then we would say something or he would say something in the driest sense thinking like oh i'm just going to throw this in there and we'll erupt in laughter and it's just funny to get to know your missionary some in that way and as they presented their ministry in France that they've had now for 50 years, they're going to be retiring off the field uh, this spring. 
but hearing 50 years of faithful ministry in France and the churches that the Lord has allowed them to plant, the difficulties they've had through the past several years, especially with COVID, um, but just the difficulties of the French government, of a rising uh, Muslim population kind of taking over much of the country, um, legal red tape to get churches, a Bible institute off the ground. He just, he recapped for us 50 years of ministry, which how you recap 50 years in 45 minutes, I have no idea, but he did it. And one of the things that I really, really appreciated about, his name is Bernard. One of the things I appreciated about Bernard was how he always brought the ministry back to God's ministry. We are just the stewards of God's ministry in France. And he points to us and says, just like you are God's stewards of ministry here in Chisago City, Minnesota. They really made an impact on me because never once did I hear him say my ministry or our ministry. It was God's ministry, God's ministry that we're stewarding. They really made the impact because just like he's in France, in our location right now in Minnesota or your location in Harlan, then we ask ourselves, well, what is it that God is doing here that we are just stewards of? What is the ministry God is doing that we are just responsible of? And with that, our big idea this morning is that God desires that his church follows his global plan for the nations. Our scripture reading this morning in Psalms was, I didn't pick that, but that was perfect to reflect God's heartbeat for the nations. I mentioned we're going to be in Acts 11. We're going to be in the second half of the chapter. Let me bring us up to speed so that when we start reading the text, we kind of have an understanding of what's going on. We have just finished the Cornelius saga. If you remember, God prompts Peter to go to the house of Cornelius and his family gets saved. This is really a, a startling moment in the spread of the gospel because now Gentiles are receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. Gentiles are coming to Christ. This is new. This kind of turns what has been happening for so long with the Jews. This turns it now to the stage of the world. And so we find the report of this event in the first part of Acts 11, and the, and the council, the church, the elders, they say, well, praise God that the gospel is coming, or the gospel uh, let's I'm just going to misquote it. In 18, then the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. If you want to think of it, this gospel is now unlocked for all people. That has just happened when we come to our text in chapter 11. It's the spark that sets the gospel fire aflame. Look with me in Acts 11. I'm going to read verses 19 to the end of the chapter. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the words to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord that was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the people and taught a great many people, met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians." 
Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So, what we are going to look at, we're kind of going to look at a progression today of this church in Antioch. We're going to look at the start of this church, the instruction of the church, and then as that church sends out its own workers for gospel ministries. So, let's look at the start of this missional church in Antioch. Let's zoom out to see what's happening. In our first couple verses of our text, it says that because of the persecution that happened to Stephen, if you remember back in Acts 7, Stephen is martyred, the gospel now goes forth because people are spreading. They're running for their lives because of persecution that would be starting. And so they are running, and where are they going? As far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Now, if you are anything like me, you read names in scripture of, ci- of cities and regions and places, but it's really hard maybe to conceptualize what we're talking about. So I have a handy-dandy little map here to help us understand. Our gold star at the bottom there is Jerusalem. This is where it all starts. People are scattering to Phoenicia, to Cyprus, and up to this city of Antioch. Antioch is approximately 300 miles north of Jerusalem. This is where people are going. Let me share with you just a little bit about the city of Antioch as we start focusing in on this city. It was the third largest city of the Roman Empire at this time, behind Rome and Alexandria. In Antioch, there would have been approximately 500,000 people, making it a very, very large metropolis. And here, because in the Roman Empire, you're not in Jerusalem, you're not in Israel anymore, you're not in Judea, this is now going to be quite the mix of Jews and Gentiles. This is actually a place that sexual immorality and pagan worship would come to meet. You've got a large, large city in a very pagan empire. One satirist, one ancient Roman satirist, described the city of Antioch. He said that all of the immorality and corruption from Antioch flowed down the river into the capital city of Rome. This place where of great pagan worship and sexual immorality is where these Jews are going to take refuge from persecution. They're running for their life. And so, as they branch into Antioch, believers are not sharing the gospel with anybody except for other Jews. It's kind of like a protection element. They're running for their life, only sharing it with Jews. But then, we see in verse 20, we see this this shift that they're speaking to the Hellenists, and and really, uh, Hellenists being a Greek-speaking Jew, but that is actually surpassing just Jewish borders. This is now going to Gentiles. What's interesting, what I find really fascinating, is that this is the first time in the book of Acts that we see your average layperson, not a, not a pastor, not an apostle, your average Christian sharing the gospel, your average Christian doing the, work of an, or doing the work of evangelism. We see this first time here as a normative thing, that a believer would share the gospel. And so they're sharing the gospel, and what happens is that now people are getting saved. What happens? We look, there's the acceptance of gospel spread. Verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great 
number who believed turned to the Lord. The hand of the Lord was with them. Which means when we read this, we, sometimes we may have the idea that, wow, look at the great work that those persecuted Christians were doing. They just like won so many souls for Christ. Awesome. But when you read verse 21, it doesn't say that the Cypriot converted all these people or that the Cypriot did all of these things. What does it say? That the hand of the Lord was with them. They turned to the Lord. It is God's work happening in Antioch because it is God who builds his church. A lot of times, let's put that in 2023, a lot of times we can look at the missionary or we can look at that really charismatic personality pastor who's got that giant church and things are thriving. Wow, that guy's amazing. Look at what he's doing. Or wow, that missionary overseas, like his ministry's going so well. Look at him. But here we clearly see it is the hand of the Lord who works. It is not man. It is God who blesses. It is God who moves his hand and a great many people were added. It's God's work. God is the one who builds his church. We have a great number, in verse 21, a great number of people, Gentiles, who are coming to Christ. Now, we've seen this happen kind of in isolated events. If you remember, in Acts 8, we have the Ethiopian eunuch. In Acts 10 and 11, we have Cornelius. But this is, again, that pivotal point shifting of the church where now we see large numbers of Gentiles coming to Christ. This is something new. This is something not experienced. And what happens when you have a large group of believers coming together, we call that a church. When you have a large number of believers who have just been saved, who've come to Christ, coming together to meet, to worship, what happens is a church is formed. A church is formed. And so we see the start of this church, a young church, but a new church, or young and a new church. So what happens, what happens after the start of this missional church is now we see this church being taught in instruction, the instruction of the missional church. Look at verse 22. The report of this, so everything that's been happening in Antioch, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So, down in Jerusalem, if you remember 300 miles south, down in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem is hearing a bunch of people just got saved up in Antioch, a pagan city. What's happening here? And so they send Barnabas. Now, this is not the first time that we have seen Barnabas in the book of Acts. If you remember, in chapter 4, Barnabas sold a large piece of property and laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet. This was given in contrast to Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5. Okay, Barnabas is a good example there. Barnabas had property, sold it, gave it to the or gave, laid it at the apostles' feet. It was Barnabas who stuck up for Paul, or Saul, after Saul's conversion— Barnabas was the one who stuck up for him and said, guys, this is, he has legitimately been saved. Verse 24 talks about Barnabas as a good man full of the Holy Spirit. Barnabas in this church was likely, had a good reputation, even from what we're given in the book of Acts. He would be a likely person to go see, well, what is happening? Perhaps the Lord had given him the ability through the Spirit to be able to discern just to discern the work of God in other people's hearts and lives. And so this church down in Jerusalem says something is happening 
because now there's a ton of believers who have accepted the gospel up in a pagan city. We should go see what is happening there. We should see what that's about. Now, we don't know why the church in Jerusalem felt responsible. Maybe it's because, you know, Christ was died and resurrected and ascended in Jerusalem, and so that's where the church started. So maybe they felt some type of personal responsibility. We're not given why they felt the need, but they felt the need to send a representative to see what is happening, what is going on, and so they send Barnabas, the son of encouragement. They send him up to Antioch. So he was a good man, full of Holy Spirit and faith, and what happens? And a great many people were added to the Lord. This is the second time now, just in our text, that we see a large group of people being added to the Lord, which is exciting. This is exciting. You're like, okay, large group of people get saved. Let somebody send somebody up to see what's happening. Barnabas, natural selection, natural person from our church that would make sense to go. So he goes. More people get saved. This church is now growing. Awesome. Great news problem. There's a lot of people for only one person. If Barnabas is the only one there seeing this and helping, he needs a team. He needs to do something. So he goes for a team of laborers. He goes for Saul. Verse 25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. Barnabas is thinking, who is it that will be a help to the ministry here in this new church? Saul. Saul of Tarsus, which if you think about it, is probably a strategic move by Barnabas. This is something big that's going to validate Saul after his conversion. Now, if you remember, we have not seen Saul for several years. We have not seen him for about two to three years. In chapter 9, when he fled Jerusalem for his life, they sent him to Tarsus. He's kind of off the scene the past couple years. So Barnabas goes through these great lengths to go around the Mediterranean Sea to find Saul in Tarsus, not, maybe not even knowing for sure if he was there, just knowing that, that was the last place he saw him or that he was sent. But he goes to the great lengths to find Saul to bring him back because of the work that was needed now in Antioch. It would help build Saul's credibility of look at the gospel work, somebody who's been changed by the gospel. Side note, bonus material. Can you guys think of somebody where you have seen a drastic conversion after coming to Christ. Maybe you're that person. I love seeing examples in scripture when we see what Saul was just a couple chapters ago to what Saul is being called to do now. Love that. Bonus information. Not in here. So they come back. So, so Barnabas grabs Saul, brings him back to Antioch. Brand new church. And he brings them, and what do they do? Verse 26, for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. They spend a year teaching and training new believers. An essential part. Imagine this. You have so many people who have just come to Christ who do not have the New Testament. They may be, can find access in like a synagogue to the Old Testament, but they do not have the New Testament. They do not have in their hands the teachings of Jesus they need to be taught. So you have now Saul and Barnabas. You have two people to a great, great, great many of people. What are you going to do? You have to teach. Because even think of your own church. Nobody goes from baby believer to a pillar of the faith overnight. When somebody comes to Christ, it takes time for them to know the word of God. How to use scripture. 
you teach. When you think of maybe somebody that you've led to the Lord in the past, or somebody that you know that has come to the Lord, you don't just say, I am so thrilled for you, praise God. Okay, bye now. You don't do that. You, you would laugh at that. You, you get them plugged into a church that will preach the gospel, that will help train and disciple them, grow them into Christ's likeness. And that's what Saul and Barnabas are doing. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And then I love how Luke just kind of throws in this little aside. In Antioch, they were first called Christians. This is likely not actually a good term. It's the first place we see it happening. But likely Christian was actually a derogatory term. These are the people who are associated with that Christ, with that Christ sayings. Those are the Christ followers. And so because they're so closely associated with the teachings of Christ and who Christ was, oh, those Christians, they're this new sect in the city of Antioch, this new weird religion. It was likely a negative thing that they were being called Christians. And even today, we look at our world and like, you can slap the name Christian on almost anything. Say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Really? I would have no idea based on the way that you live. Do we bear that name Christian intentionally with a way that people could look at us and say, I can tell you're a Christian, not because you have to tell me, but because of your association with Jesus Christ. Is what comes out of our mouth, what comes out of the way that we live, would that show people we are closely associated with Christ, that we can be called a Christian, not because we slap on a religious label? These people in Antioch, these believers, who are, who are almost frowned upon as this new sect, receive this teaching from Saul and Barnabas. And so we see the start of this missional church. We see how this church is instructed through the ministry of Barnabas and Saul. But then lastly, this is kind of where we come full circle, and we start seeing the maturity of this church, the laborers sent out from the missional church. This is when we go from baby brand new church all the way to a church that is now sending out their own workers. I love this. I get super excited about this. We see this come full circle. What happens with this church? They meet a need. Verses 27 and 28. Now in the days the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So we see this prophet, again, remember, in the early church, these sign gifts used to validate and establish the early church that are not normative, not they have ceased for today, but in the early church they were used. And so we see this prophet, by the work of the Holy Spirit, he has this prophecy about, uh, about a famine. Now, what's cool, what is interesting, is that because of this famine, and he give, Luke gives us this little aside in the days of Claudius, we know that there were five famines that happened during Emperor Claudius's reign. This is likely going to be like the most severe one that happened in AD 47 when Tiberius Alexander was the financial governor of the province of, Jude, of Judea. So we can speculate around approximately what time this is happening. I love when history and Bible and you can like pinpoint and you're like, that's really interesting. Anyway, side note. So we see this, we see this coming famine bought, brought by the prophecy from Agabus. And what happens? What happens with this famine. This is where we see the maturity of this group of believers. Verse 29. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so by sending, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. 
So there's this famine down in Judea, the province, the, if you want to say the state, the province of Judea where Jerusalem is. These believers up in Antioch, new church, but about a year old, having trained and discipled under Saul and Barnabas, they say, well, there's a need. There's a problem that we can help meet. So what do they do? They give one, or they, everyone, according to his ability, send relief down to Judea. They send, them, or they send relief through the hands of Saul and Barnabas. This church looks and they say, what can we do to help? Who can we send from our church to go meet this need for brothers and sisters in Christ down in Jerusalem? That's a mark of a church that is healthy and growing when they look past their own sphere and they see there is a need that we can help me and we will select people out from our church to go. I hope that's sounding a little bit familiar to how we do missions today, but we'll come back to that. They send people to meet a need. We have seen this, aside from missionary work maybe that you have on your back, in the back foyer, we have seen this happen in the past year. Think of how many ministries, whether your church in particular, you've heard of other ministries that have sent relief to Ukraine. I mentioned in Sunday school that the day that Natalie and I arrived in the Netherlands uh, last February to do a two-week trip, the day that we arrived was the day that Russia full force invaded and attacked on the Netherlands, or sorry, on Ukraine. So we, the first Sunday that we were there, then we heard much time spent in prayer at the church for the situation in Ukraine and Russia. One week later, that church had already mobilized a team to have somebody share a ministry that the church was going to do to collect needs and send them over into Ukraine through somebody's family member who had a connection in the church. And, but in one week, we saw a church go from devastating news to mobilizing relief for Ukraine. And no doubt there have been countless missions agencies, churches, Christian organizations here in the States who have done the same thing for Ukraine. We've seen what happens when believers see a need, they come together, and they meet that need. Everyone according to his ability. So they send relief to Jerusalem at the hands of Saul and Barnabas among themselves. This is this idea of where we're getting of the fact that a church is the one who sends out gospel workers. This is why we look and we say a missionary is not someone who goes out by themselves and wakes up one day and says, I had a calling from God and I'm going to go to the other side of the world. I hope my church is on board, but if not, oh well, I'm going. That's not biblical. We look at a church. We look at a church that sends out their own workers to go do gospel ministry. That's why, when we look at the biblical pattern of missions, that's why we look at churches sending out their own missionaries. It's not the mission agency. It's not Baptist Mid Missions who it's sending out. It's our home church, Chisago Lakes Baptist Church. They are the ones sending us, and we see that from Scripture. When you jump, and you don't have to turn there if it's on a different page, but you jump to the end of chapter 12, and what happens? Saul and Barnabas have been in Jerusalem, and then at the end of chapter 12, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. They come back. The missionaries, the gospel workers, go down to Jerusalem, help the need, and then they come back to the church. Modern-day terminology, furlough. This is why you see missionaries every three, four, five years come back to give report of what God has been doing. 
we see that so clearly here in Scripture. They come back and give report of what they were sent out to do. And then as you read the next chapter, in chapter 13, you see them being sent out again. The church says, go do it again. And this is what started those missionary journeys that we know throughout the book of Acts. They're going out, sharing the gospel, and establishing churches. Because when we look at God's plan for the nations, there's our theme, when we look at God's plan for the nations, it is so much bigger than the city of Jerusalem. When we look at God's plan for the nations, it is so much bigger than the province of Judea. It is so much bigger than the city of Harlan. It is bigger than the state of Iowa, than the Midwest. God's plan for the nations is for all peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations. Growing in maturity in Christ. Reaching the lost and sending out gospel workers of their own. So let's bring this full circle. Let me ask you, what part are you playing in God's plan for the nations? What part do you play in God's plan for the nations? Because God is building his church. Just like he was in Acts chapter 11, he is today. God is continuing to still build his church to use his hand. And what role do you play? Notice I did not ask if you are playing a role. Because when we look at scripture, everybody has a part to play. So what role are you playing? Let me give you some tangible ideas of what that might look like for Grace Baptist Church in Harlan, Iowa. One is the obvious, sharing Jesus with others. This is the thing you expect when, like, a missionary comes, and they're like, share Jesus, evangelize, and you're like, yeah, okay, I expect a missionary to say that. But look at scripture. Go, teach, baptize all nations in what Jesus has taught and what Jesus has commanded. Share Jesus with others, your neighbor, okay, your coworker, your family member. There are people in your life who do not yet know Jesus Christ that God has put into your sphere of influence for you to reach. Share Jesus with others. What about pray regularly for your missionaries? I loved seeing in the bulletin this morning already with the Galbraiths, just a a little blurb about them. You know what's going on that you can pray for. You guys have those people in your church where you think, okay, if I were to think of the definition of a prayer warrior, instantly you probably just thought of somebody in your church who's a prayer warrior. That is a wonderful ministry to pray regularly for your missionaries. Bring them before the throne of grace. What about communicating with your missionaries? Communicating. That's the email. That's maybe, you know, texting, email, video call. Maybe that's handwriting a letter. I don't know. Communicate with your missionaries regularly so that they know their partners are praying for them and are interested in their life. And you can support the work that God is doing by ministering to your missionaries. What about tangibly encouraging them? Consider sending a gift. We live in a world where sending gifts is so much easier than it has ever been. Maybe that's PayPal or Venmo or you send money or something like that. Maybe that is sending a gift of you're going to put together a package. You know this missionary family has several kids and Christmas is coming up and so you're going to put together a little Christmas package for them and send it in the mail to them. Sending a gift is a huge way to encourage the gospel partners that you have around the world. And sometimes that's not always possible. Maybe they live in a part of the world where mail just doesn't get there. That's possible. But a lot of times it is very possible to send a gift. What about visiting your missionaries? 
What about the missionaries that you support and going to visit them? More than just the pastor. What if a lay person in a church said, I'm going to go encourage one of our partners and I'm going to go visit them for a week, help where I can, pray with them, let them talk to me, and be there in person. What is so fun is when you get to see kind of the field, if you get to see where your workers, where your missionary workers are, you end up being way more invested when you come back. Because you've seen it, you've talked to them, you've met the people they work with. When you read those newsletters, you're like, I was there, I've seen that, or I talked to that person, I prayed with that person. You're invested, and you bring that excitement back, and guess what? Your church is just a little bit more invested in the work that's happening there when you go to visit your missionaries. And then lastly, because I would not be a good missionary on deputation if I did not include this, go to the field yourself. This is often something that we encourage high school kids, college students, to consider. Consider how God could use you as a missionary. Let me encourage you, if you've never considered how God could use you as a missionary, whether you are 18 or whether you are 48 or 58, if you've never considered how God could use you as a missionary, wrestle with that. We were at a missions emphasis weekend just a couple weeks ago, and one of the couples there, starting to raise funds on deputation, were 58. They were 58 and 57. I thought that was so cool. That God would lead a couple who is not in that college stage of life to the mission field for church planning. It's exciting to see. In our youth group at our church in Minnesota, uh, where I, I've been leading the past several years as the assistant pastor, I encourage our teenagers, if you've never once wrestled with God's leading in your life to missions, let me encourage you to do that at least once. And I would echo that to anybody of any stage of life. If you've never wrestled with God's leading to missions, let me encourage you to do that. These are just six ways. No doubt there are countless more ways to encourage your missionaries in a way that you are playing a part in God's plan for the nations. But when we look at scripture, when we look at all of this wrapped up, what do we see is that God desires that his church follows his global plan for the nations. His church, not the missionary, or the pastor, or the deacon, but his church, those who are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Who is it in your geographical circle in Harlan, in Iowa, who is it that you know needs Jesus? Which one of the missionaries you know that you can encourage through an email or a phone call? Would it be our prayer that Grace Baptist Church in Harlan, our church, the Saga Lakes Baptist Church, that the Church of Christ would model what we see in Antioch, growing, discipling, maturing, and sending. Let me go ahead and pray. God, we are grateful for the instruction and the example that you give us in your word. We are so thankful for the fact that you give us lessons and application through how you have woven the gospel through the story of the church and through Acts. God, I ask for each believer here to be a light, to be a testimony in their community, to their neighbors, in their workplace. Lord, and that this church would partner well with those missionaries that they support. Lord, more than, more than prayer, or more than finances, but Lord, praying with and praying for and being an encouragement. God, we are so thankful for the body of Christ that you have bought with, this, with the blood of Jesus Christ. 
Would you give us opportunity even this week to share Christ with someone else? We pray this in your son's name. Amen.